Well, good morning. How are we? I'm excited to be here today. I'm so thankful that you chose to spend some time with us. I see some new faces in the house today. We want to say welcome. Uh, like Jason said, we have a philosophy here at Vertical Life Church. We believe all of our guests are VIPs. That's very important people. And it's because we believe everyone matters to God. There's not a person that has existed that has been outside of the reach of God and his love. He loves everyone so much. And uh, he gave his one and only son to die on a cross so that he could restore relationship with each and every one of us. And so every one of us are, are to die for in the sight of God. He loves us with that unfailing and amazing love. And so we hope that the time you're here, you sense that love in this place. You sense valued and wanted and desired because you are ever so much in the eyes of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And, uh, and so we're thankful that you chose to spend some time with us today. If you didn't stop by the VIP table on your way in, please make sure to hit that up on the way out and, uh, and get your swag bag, have some information about the church, and um, help you stay connected with what's going on here uh, at our church. Um, a couple months ago, uh, we did something new. Our church has celebrated recently our second year anniversary, so we're officially over two years old, and so we celebrated that. And uh, yes... Uh, that's a big deal because if you're not like in the know on church planting, when you start a new church, statistically, most church plants fail within the first two years. So we've kind of overcome that statistic. And so we believe God is blessing and, and on our way to see some amazing things happen. And we have. And one of the things that uh, happened recently in the life of our church is we were able to begin this process of raising up new leaders. And uh, uh, a couple months ago, we asked the church to nominate some men in the, in the church to um, come alongside of the elders of the church as a junior elder to help us in the leadership and guidance of our church. And uh, we had several names that were nominated. I think there's about 11. And uh, we, uh, we uh, spoke to each and every one of them, found out two things, whether or not they were able to do it and whether or not they were willing to do it. Well, most of them were able and some of them were only willing. So uh, that lowered the, uh, the, the amount of people we had to actually investigate and, so, and, and talk to. But we narrowed it down to, to two men who said that they were both willing and able and desired to take that step. And uh, we met with both Brian Welch and Chris Moyer Saturday morning as a leadership team. We had already spoken with both of them and their wives uh, to make sure that they were in unity about the commitment that they were uh, volunteering for, they were surrendering to. And uh, at that meeting, we made the determination that Chris Moyer would be coming on as our junior elder. And uh, they're, they're not here today, but this is the Moyer family. This is Chris and Katie Moyer. And so we're excited about the ministry that, uh, that God has prepared for them and what that means for the life of our church. We're, we're excited. Our, our church has a mission statement. Every church has the same goal. Jesus gave it to us in the New Testament. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if you go to a Christian church, that's the church's mission. If they're not doing that, they're, they're not fulfilling its mission. And uh, we kind of rephrase it like this. We say we exist to engage people where they are and lead them to becoming fully developed followers of Jesus Christ. And so part of that mission we see as raising up leaders to take on the call of God for their lives. And this is important for us as a, very, as a next step. So we're excited about that. Uh, we're going to continue in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. If you have your Bible with you, we're in Matthew chapter 21. We also have the verses on the screen. Today we've been, uh, over the last year or so, kind of going through a journey in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, to catch those up that are, that are guests with us today, we have called this Confessions of a Sinner. 
simply because Matthew, even though he was the disciple of Christ, he was an apostle, he was the founder of one of the founders of the Christian church, he, in the view of those that he lived with, was one of the worst and most egregious sinners around. Tax collectors in the days of Christ were, were hated and vilified because they were Jewish men who turned their back on their own country in order to serve the Roman government. And the Roman government oftentimes would empower them not only to collect taxes for the government, but they would empower them to be able to charge any number of percentage above the requirement in order to pad their own pockets. So many of these guys were thieving or stealing from their fellow countrymen, which was not only against the law of Moses, but it was also seen as just uh, very uh, disreputable in that time. And so Matthew wasn't a liked guy. In the time Jesus Christ called him to be a disciple, I can imagine everyone around being like, that guy? Are you sure? That guy? You, you want to pick him? Do you know what he does for a living? And that's just kind of reaffirms our philosophy here at church as we believe everyone matters to God. It doesn't matter what occupation that you've had, your past. It doesn't matter what you've done or mistakes you've made. Everybody has a call of God on their life for something great. And so we've been looking at this gospel, this account of what Matthew experienced as he began to follow Jesus Christ and the things that he heard and saw. And now we're in Matthew chapter 21. This is a famous passage of scripture. This kind of takes place during Holy Week. It's called the triumphant entry of Christ. This is when Jesus enters Jerusalem literally for the last time before his crucifixion. And uh, we're going to read kind of this passage of scripture and then talk about how we can apply this to our lives today. Uh, beginning in verse 1 in Matthew chapter 21, the word of the Lord records this. It says, as Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there and its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. The others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. This is also Palm Sunday, and we remember uh, the, in the King James Version, it says, Hosanna in the highest, or Hosanna uh, in the highest heaven, he who comes, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, verse 10, the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have read your words. God, we know that these are more than stories. This is the very inspiration that comes from your lips, God. This is your word to us. And so, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would begin speaking now in this place, that hearts would be open and minds would be ready to receive the word that you have for us, God. God, we long to know you more. 
to follow you, to give our lives to you because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So God, I pray that all distraction would be removed from this place, that the works of the enemy would be put to death. Now, all strongholds would be loosed and set free so that we can give you our full time and attention in this place, God, to give you glory with our lives. God, change us. We give our lives to you in Jesus' name, amen. So here we have this story. Jesus has been, uh, for roughly three years, he's been teaching, he's been uh, training his disciples, he's been doing miracles, and now he's gotten to the countdown before his crucifixion. Over the last several weeks or so, he's been kind of kind of hinting to his disciples that his death was imminent, that he was going to die, and now we've gotten to this countdown. And on this, this week before his crucifixion, on this Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry, we see three specific prophecies being fulfilled. Now, this is one of the reasons why Jesus is unlike anyone else who has ever come and said that they were the Messiah. At this time, we know that there have been many Messiahs. Matter of fact, archaeology today is still trying to link all these people they've discovered that have claimed to be Messiah, that claimed to be risen from the dead, uh, to uh, this time period to prove that Jesus was just another false prophet. But the thing about Jesus that sets him apart from everyone else is that he is unlike anyone else. He fulfills, literally, we can see word for word, prophecies that were prophesied hundreds to thousands of years prior. Jesus is fulfilling to the T. And we see three different prophecies, Zechariah 9.9, we see Isaiah 62.11, and Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Now, I don't know when you open the Bible and you read it, if you're super serious. I know there's some super serious Christians out there. And so when you read the Bible, it's like, okay, I got to get this right, or I, I'm not going to be right with God. You know, but when I read the Bible, sometimes I find some humor in it. I really think that God has a sense of humor. And even though this is the fulfillment of prophecy, in Zechariah 9.9, uh, the prophet Zechariah tells us how Jesus is going to arrive on this day, how he's going to enter into Jerusalem. It talks about his mode of transportation. And here Matthew says in the story, if you recount what happens, it says that Jesus, before he got to town, he told his disciples, hey, uh, why don't you go to that village over there, and you're going to see a donkey and a colt, and just steal them. Just take them. And if anybody says anything about it, just tell them, the Lord needs it. And I'm thinking, imagine if you were to try that in real life. Like, I think this is a do not try this at home part of the Bible. You, you know, because, you know, I'm thinking like, yeah, I, I want to take a trip. I, I want to head into town, but my car is broken down. I need a, a ride. And my friend or the, my neighbor has this Jaguar in his car. I think I'm going to go hot wire that. And uh, if anyone says anything, I'm just going to say the Lord needs it and see what happens. No, it, that's not going to work, right? That, that's not going to go down. You, you're not going to go into a, a store and say, well, I'm just going to take this shirt and tell them the Lord needs it. You are going to meet some boys in blue and get some shiny new bracelets to go along with your new place to live, right? This is just the way it is. But this is what happens. This was, you know, just Jesus is the only one that could pull this off, right? And so I just find this to be super funny how we get this donkey and this colt and basically uh, they, they boost them but uh, get away with it because they end up getting them as a gift. And so um, it's just the way my mind works. But that's uh, Zechariah 9.9 talks about how he's going to ride into town. And then Isaiah 62.11 tells us what is going to happen when the Messiah comes to town. Isaiah 62 verse 11 says, the Lord has sent this message to every land. 
So everyone around him says, tell the people of Israel, look, your Savior, the one you've been waiting for is coming. And see what he brings with him. He brings his reward with him as he comes. Like if you think about the nation of Israel, for, for hundreds of years, for a thousand years at the time of Moses and Abraham, they've been going through all of these sacrifices, going through all of this struggle. They've been doing everything they've done through their religion to honor God and appease him and have their sins covered for this moment. For the time the Messiah would be revealed. And so here the prophet says when he comes, he's bringing that reward with him. What is that reward? It's complete forgiveness of your sins. And a complete expulsion of everything you've done wrong. The sacrifices and all the rituals of the Old Testament were just strong enough to cover sin. But when Messiah comes, your sin will be gone. It'll be forgiven. It'll be cleansed. It'll be gone as far as the east is from the west, the Bible tells us. So this is the reward. Not only will your sin be forgiven, but the relationship with God we lost when Adam and Eve bit the fruit is going to be restored. So everything that, that's created brokenness, everything that's created wonder about why am I here and what is the point of life and all the source of all struggle and pain is going to be resolved in this moment the Messiah is revealed. And this is significant. And the third prophecy we see here is not only what does Jesus bring with him, is this offer of salvation and restoration, but where does he go? Well, he goes to the temple in fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Now, if you think about the history of Israel, the temple, that's where all the feasts, all the festivals took place, is where all the rituals took place. And the reason was because is there was something that was stored in the temple that was significant. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was this gold box that Moses uh, created when the children of Israel were wandering the desert. And this is literally where the presence of God resided. It is said that wherever the Ark went was where the presence of God was. And there are stories in the Old Testament where the Israel lost the Ark because they lost some battles with an enemy. And the enemy put the Ark in their temple of their false god. And their, their god's uh, shrine was knocked over. It was destroyed. And it freaked the people out so much they gave the Ark back because of the power and presence of God that was in that place. When the Ark went before the nation of Israel, they won every war. That It was a fearsome thing to come against Israel when the Ark was present because that's where God was. When the ark was in the tabernacle or in the temple and they would offer sacrifices, it said that the literal glory of God, that the, the smoke of his presence, that his glory would rest on the mercy seat. That this is where God was. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, the Old Testament, that is the last time the ark is mentioned to be in the temple. 2 Chronicles 35. So that means that from that point on, there's 600 years between the time the ark is last seen in the temple to the time Jesus Christ arises on the scene. That means the presence of God had been gone from the nation or been removed from the nation for centuries. The ark disappeared just before the Babylonian exile. When the Babylonians took over and enslaved the people. And when the city was restored, you read in the book of Nehemiah that the city is restored, that the temple is restored later on, the ark is still missing. There's no ark. So the sacrifices go back just as before. The rituals go back just as before. But there's no ark. There's no presence of God. 
In Jeremiah the prophet, in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 16, Jeremiah prophesies of this time that, that it's this time of longing, that the people are longing for the return of the ark because that means there would be a return of this relationship with God, this restoration of relationship with God. In verse 16 of Jeremiah chapter 3, he says, And when the, your land is once more filled with people, says the Lord, you will no longer wish for the good old days when you possess the ark of the Lord's covenant. You will not miss those days or even remember them, and there will be no need to rebuild the ark. Why? Because God himself was going to be present with his people. There'd be no need for this golden box to, to offer sacrifices uh, and pour the sacrificial blood and, and offer the sacrifices on top of the ark because God himself would be there among his people. Because when the Messiah comes, he's bringing his reward. He's bringing forgiveness. He's bringing his presence. He's bringing restored relationship. And what they didn't realize, what was happening right there before them when Jesus enters the temple, is that God himself was coming back home. He was coming back home to the place where he once resided whenever his presence was on the ark. And this is so significant because when God came back home, what did he find? What did Jesus find when he got there, when he got back to the temple? He found that his temple had been filled with wicked and faithless people. Instead of the temple being a place to encounter the presence of God and to worship his name, it became a place of consumerism, of greed, and of religious self-promotion. I mean, if you think about what was happening for 600 years, this is a place where instead of people giving God their best, they were now just showing up to go through the ritual. They were just purchasing their sacrifices instead of sacrificing to give God their sacrifices. The priests, the religious leaders of the day, instead of being leaders that were supposed to lead the people into repentance and into a broken heart before God and into the faith and a faithful life of living to God's honor and glory, instead they were gaining wealth at the people's expense and using their ignorance and their trust as a means to line their greedy pockets. The priests in his day were some of the richest in the land. So instead of a, a joyful reunion that, that God could come back and be reunited with his people and celebration and praise and glory and, and just this restoration of a broken relationship, instead of a joyful reunion with God, it's yet another day for discipline and judgment and fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 3. You see, when Jeremiah speaks of the time that there'll be no more need for the ark, he says it's going to come at a time when the land is filled with wickedness and sin, where the nation of Israel is living for themselves. So God makes this promise through Jeremiah that the Messiah is going to come during this time, and he's going to make all things new. He's going to return uh, the people again, their hearts again to the Lord. But Jesus comes into this temple and finds it filled with wickedness. And I have to ask the question, as we look at this period of time and what's happening in the story, this is just where my mind went this week. I have to ask the question, is that, is it not the same today? Is it not the same today? If Jesus was to return today, what would he find in his temple? What would be going on in his temple? What would be the state of people in his temple? You see, the temple is no longer standing in Jerusalem. Right now, it's the 
the Dome of the Rock, it's an Islamic mosque. All the, the stones have even been removed. There's only the mount or, or the, the foundation of where the temple once stood. So the temple is no longer the brick and mortar building that Solomon built, but it, the temple still exists. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, the apostle Peter says this, and he's talking to the church. He says, you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. The church of Jesus Christ has replaced the brick and mortar building. We are now the temple of God. God, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the scripture says that he sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of you. You become the dwelling place of God. And just as Jesus came to his temple here in Jerusalem, he comes into your heart when you're saved. And as I compare that day with this day, I see that we may not be selling sacrifices for religious ritual. But many churches are peddling a product. It's about the style of the music. It's about the presentation of the, of the service. It's about a feeling. It's about a coolness factor. Many of the messages that on the lips of teachers are that of prosperity, mainly their prosperity, at the sake of their people sowing financial seeds. Christians gather in a building for an experience that makes them feel religious, not for an encounter with God that could make them holy. See, really, the only difference between the church today and the people of Israel back then is that Israel worshipped believing they had the presence of God and didn't. And today, we have the presence of God, but live and worship as if we don't. God doesn't dwell in a building or a box anymore. He dwells in our hearts. We don't have to go to God. We bring God with us. And we access his power and presence in our lives when we exercise our faith by obeying his will and following his promises. But for many people, they only desire to gather together in the church to honor or flatter Jesus with their lips because their hearts have not yet been prepared to house his presence through repentance of sin and through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And there are many sins that we give ourselves over to. Paul, as he's talking to the church of Corinth in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, he says that some people have their God as their stomach. Like they call themselves Christians, they say they're followers of Jesus Christ, but really they worship their appetite. And that what he's getting at is that there are many things that we give ourselves over to. Anything that we desire or worship over God, anything we put above our relationship with God, becomes a false god or an idol in our lives. And there are many things that we give ourselves over to. And in our day today, if you turn on the news or, or look at any social media, you can see the most prevalent god in our day is the god of sex. It's a hot topic. Anything having to do with sexual orientation, desire, uh, identity, pornography, and the like. And many people use the justification of God's grace to excuse the sin in their lives. Well, I believe in Jesus. He's forgiven me, so what I do doesn't matter. Well, God will just forgive me of that when I ask, and so it doesn't matter that I act like this or involve in this or follow after this. 
And we are saved by his grace. There's nothing we can do to earn the salvation of God. If he hadn't chosen to give us salvation, we would not have it. It's a grace thing. But sin, Paul tells us, leads to death and destruction. He tells us that when we sin, we open the door to the demonic in our lives. When we commit sin, when we willfully disobey God and we choose to go our own way and start to follow God's way, what we're saying is, Satan, come in and do whatever you want. Bring death, bring destruction, harm my family, ruin my job, ruin my finances, ruin my outlook on life. Fill me with depression, fill me with brokenness when we say no to God. And a person who lacks repentance, who hasn't said, no, I'm not going to follow my sinful nature and I'm going to follow a life that is dedicated to Christ, not only shows a lack of true salvation, but they make themselves a tool of the enemy to continue and unleash his will in the world. But in our world and in our culture and in this nation, we want excuses for our sinful behavior. And many in our churches would rather hide their sin than do what Christ said, and that is confess your sin. Paul says if we confess and we believe in our hearts, we will be saved. If we confess our sins, we will be free from the bondage of the enemy. But our churches would rather hide their sin and pretend like we've got it all together than come broken before God. David in the psalm says, the sacrifice of bulls and goats is not what you desire, God. You desire a broken and repentant heart, and we know this, but yet we ignore this. And in our day, our churches, Christians all over the world, use the grace of God as an excuse to continue living for themselves. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 he makes this statement. He says, don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. Your body is not your own. God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. You see, when Jesus died on the cross and he came back from the grave, a transaction happened. A credit got placed on your account. And when you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you accepted that credit and placed it on yourself. And you became adopted into the family of God. You're no longer your own master. You are a slave to Christ. And uh, here Paul is saying that your body, your life belongs not to you, but it belongs to God. Think about it. Think about uh, if you were... You know, new, setting off to kind of make your own way in life, and you decided that your job wasn't giving you enough income, and you decided that you wanted to do something new to generate some money, and so you decided to invest into a rental property, to an investment property. And so you spent uh, a lot of time saving up your money to be able to purchase the property, and then, and then to kind of flip it, refurbish it, and you sacrificed all that time and energy to make that house a place where somebody could live and live well. And then as you got that house ready, you then found somebody to then rent that house from you. And you entered into a, the relationship. A transaction happened where they signed the agreement. Yes, I'm going to live in this house and I'm going to pay you a monthly fee. And we're going to have this now renter-owner relationship. And so now you're excited. You're like, okay, great. I'm going to have this income come in. I'm going to have a, a reward from this transaction, this new relationship that I've entered. But yet when payday comes... And you go to the mail, you open your mailbox, you realize the rent check's not there. And so you're a good-natured person. You're like, well, I'll give them a couple days because maybe something happened. And 
you wait a couple of days and the rent check doesn't show up. And a couple of days turns into a week, and a week turns into two weeks, and now you're upset. So you go to the rental house and you knock on the door because you're going to find out what's going on. They agreed if they're going to live in your home, they're going to pay you this money. And you open the door and you realize that the house is trashed. It's destroyed. All your hard work has been ruined. All the paint's peeled off the walls. All the new trim's been chewed up. You know, the carpet's destroyed. And you come to find out that the person living in your home has been throwing wild parties, has been having people over, and not caring a lick about all your time, your energy, and your investment. If that was you, you'd have an eviction notice on that door pronto. Right? You wouldn't let them just hang out in the house and continue to treat your property that way. If the person wasn't going to respect someone else's possession like that, if they were going to disrespect it like that, then they don't need the benefit of staying in that home any longer. They don't need the benefit of that relationship, that owner-renter relationship. And what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is that he's saying that your body is not your own. You are just renting it. Your body, your life has been purchased. God has paid a high price. God made an investment beyond what you could possibly imagine to earn the right to own your home. And when you entered that owner-renter relationship, you agreed to some standards. You agreed to give up your own way, to take up your cross and follow him. That's what you agreed to. And what Paul is saying here is like, look, if you want to live for yourself, then you don't need the benefits of that owner-renter relationship. You don't need the salvation that God has promised. You don't need the blessings that he's promised. You don't need him to work out good in your life because you honestly don't want it. You want to live for yourself. If you want the benefits of this owner-renter relationship, which is not only eternity in heaven when you die, but it's also an incredibly blessed life. Jesus said, I've come to give them life and life overflowing. If you want that kind of life, then you need to honor the Lord's purchase by respecting his property. When you honor God by giving your body as a living sacrifice, you get to reap the benefits of that relationship. And this is why this is so paramount in our day and in our culture, in our nation, and in the times that we live is because we're not only facing difficult times. I mean, if the political season has got you freaked out, that's the least of our worries. But in this time, in these dark days, we are missing out on an opportunity to see God work in a powerful way because we're more interested in hiding our sin than confessing. Our sin. We spend so much time fighting our problems that we bring upon ourselves because of our own sinful attitudes and actions than walking in the blessings of God by just saying, God, you lead the way. God is just waiting for us to say, enough is enough. I'm not going to let the enemy have his way in my life any longer. I'm going to stop living my own way. I'm going to give my life to Jesus Christ. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to take him at his word. Here in Matthew chapter 21, verse 12, as it talks about Jesus entering his temple, it says, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers, the chairs of those selling doves. He was purifying the temple just like he does 
Purify this temple when he comes in to live in your heart through sanctification and through the repentance of sin. Verse 13, he says, he said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer. A house of prayer. This is what the temple of God should be called, should be known as. In prayer, prayer is the conduit of God's power and presence in our lives. What Jesus is saying here is like when you, when the temple is a house of prayer, that means we have a continual connection, that there's no disconnect between us. Prayer is how we focus our minds and our hearts on God. Prayer is how we speak to God and many ways hear him speak back to us. Prayer is how we petition God for the things we desperately need and desire. Prayer increases our faith. Prayer is probably if not the most, one of the most important parts of the Christian life. Paul the Apostle, in his letter to the Thessalonians, he says, pray without ceasing, never stop praying. This is where we get our core value of unceasing prayer. Because prayer keeps you in a continual state of connectedness to God. And with all of our issues in our day, politically, culturally, economically, his house, which is his temple, now being my heart and your heart should be a house of prayer. Should be continually connected to God at all times. And God in the Old Testament, he gave his people a promise when his house becomes a house of prayer. 2 Chronicles 7, 13 through 16 is a, one of the most quoted promises of God in all the Old Testament. But we're going to begin reading in 13 because it sets up his promise. In verse 13 in 2 Chronicles, God says, At times I might shut up the heavens so that no rain falls, or command grasshoppers to devour your crops, or send plagues among you. In other words, God is saying sometimes life is going to suck bad. Life's going to be difficult. There's going to be tension. There's going to be pain. There's going to be misery. You're going to struggle like you've never struggled before. Sometimes you're going to go from one bad season to another bad season. But then he makes a promise in verse 14. But he says, in that bad season, in that dark time, amidst your struggle, he says, then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, will seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and what? Restore their land. But look at what he says. He says, if my people who are called by my name, who are we if not the people of God who bear the name of Christ, who died for our sins? We are Christians. We bear the name of God. We're adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ. He's saying if we humble ourselves and pray, if we humble ourselves to be connected to him and seek his face, but then he says turn from your wicked ways. What does that imply? That implies there's wickedness in this house today. There's wickedness among the people of God. There's a need for the people of God who are called by his name to humble themselves, get over themselves, and repent of their sin. Seek his face and pray. When we repent, we humble ourselves, seek his face and pray. He says, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and restore their land. And look what he says in verse 15. He says, my eyes will be open 
and my ears attentive to every prayer made in this place. What place? For I've chosen this temple to set it apart to be holy, a place where my name will be honored forever. I will always watch over it, for it is dear to my heart. The temple of God, the place where his presence resides, has a special place in his heart. God's unfailing love is centered on you 24-7. And what he's saying is that no matter what times you face, no matter what's happening in the world or happening in your life, if you would get on your knees, humble yourself, repent of your sin, seek his face, and pray, God's going to come in and do a work in your life. He's going to change things around. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. The Old Testament, this was Solomon's temple. But now it is our hearts. Paul tells the church of Corinth that all of God's promises are yes, and we can look to this promise and say that God, because of what Christ has done, this promise applies to us as much as it did to the people back then. And we can believe this promise with our whole hearts. And in this very hour and in this very day, we need God to bring restoration to our land. We need God to bring restoration to our city. I don't know about you, but our leaders are doing some dumb stuff. It's like the world's lost its mind. What would happen if his people, who were called by his name, would humble themselves and pray? That they pray for their nation. They pray for their state. They pray for their city. They pray for their church. They pray for their families, their friends. That they pray for the sick. That they pray for the impoverished. That they pray for the abandoned, the betrayed, and the outcast, the slave, the thug, the dealer, the pimp, the prostitute. What would happen if God's people humbled themselves and prayed in the nation? We need a people, a church, to never stop praying, to never stop interceding with prayers of faith, not asking God if he will, but believing God that he will come through because he said he would. Declaring restoration and victory against the war of this enemy. And this is the key. This is the reason why we pray. And the core concept of this message today, and it's simply this, is that when we truly pray, we are awakened to God's purposes. When we really pray, and I'm not talking about just going through the laundry list of our gripes and complaints that we tend to do. I'm talking about on your face before God, weeping and praying. When we pray, we are awakened to God's promises. Because something happens when God's people repent. When you repent, when you turn away from your sin, something happens. You begin to stop thinking selfishly. You stop thinking only about yourself. And something happens when you begin to seek his face. You start looking outward beyond your own life and situation and are awakened to God's greatest purpose for your life. You see, our purpose as the church, the reason why God saved you is not to sit in a service. God saved you to be an agent of change in the world. God saved you to bring light into the darkness. God saved you to intercede in somebody's life who is far from him and needs a radical transforming encounter with Jesus Christ. And God is waiting to restore the land because he's waiting on you 
to humble yourself, to repent of your sin, to seek his face, and to pray. When the temple of God bows down in prayer, when his people come to him and we bow down before God in prayer, God raises up an army to be light in the darkness. See, Jesus said, my strength is most powerful in weakness. God doesn't want us to puff ourselves up and say, look what we can do. He wants us to get low before God and say, I can't do anything without you. And when we say, we recognize we can't do anything without God, we decide in our hearts that we're going to live according to his will, his purposes and plans. God's power shines through and begins the healing work in our lives, begins to bring restoration to our families, begins to bring restoration to our city and to our community, and it goes out from there. We are the body of Christ. We are the representation of Jesus in the world. And if we don't get out to be light and darkness, there's no plan B. God wants us to be his hands and feet in this world. The restoration that we long for, the healing that you want to see in your family, the healing you want to see in your culture and in your community, the healing you want to see in your nation, it begins with you and me. And that will only happen if his people were called by his name, will humble themselves and pray, seek his face, turn from their wicked ways, and then he will hear from heaven. When his temple lives up to its purpose, to be a house of prayer. Today I want to see faith and hope rise in this place. And I want to see it go out from here. I want to see lives changed. I want to see people not just accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but I want to see their lives transformed. I want to see the depression lift and joy come back into their life. I want to see the, the health and the struggle and the pain be removed and then finally live a life of freedom in Jesus Christ. But that only works as if I leave this place to be a minister for the glory of God. So today, we used to do something before we launched our church, back when we met in a coffee shop. We used to take a portion of our service, and we would just get together as a people and pray. We'd pray for each other. We'd pray for different things. And I know it might be kind of awkward. Some of you, you know, you, you're not used to praying in groups, and, and that's okay, if, especially our guests. If you just want to stay where you are, then I invite you to do that. But I'm going to ask our church, if you call Vertical Life Church home in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to respond to the Word of God by helping this place be a house of prayer, by letting this temple become a house of prayer. And you can either get together with your family or a few people around you and begin to pray for a few things. I have some prayer points on this, they'll be on the screen. First is that you pray for our nation, for the political season, the politics, but you would pray for our nation that the people, that their hearts would turn again to the Lord. We've come so far from when we first began. We need a revival in this nation, that you pray for our leaders, that our leaders would govern according to God's will and purposes, that God would be king in this nation. 
that you'd pray against the strongholds of the enemy. The enemy has crept in and taken a lot of ground in America and in our state and in our culture and in our communities and the families that we know. And we need to begin praying against those that God would bring freedom and redemption and empower us as agents of change in the world. We need to pray for more faith that what we do here isn't just talk, but that we go out from this place and live according to our calling in Jesus Christ. And then pray for this church that we would always be a beacon of hope in this community, that we would always walk in faith together, that our worship would always be genuine, that we wouldn't just come assuming God's presence is here when it leaves, that we would come to encounter the presence of God, that we would come to seek his face, and that we would be changed by what we encounter here. There'll be some in your group that need healing. Well, pray for healing. Lay your hands on them and pray for them. There'll be some that are struggling, either emotionally or going through things in their family. Lay your hands on them. Pray for them in Jesus' name and declare freedom for them. For the the next few moments after we pray, we're going to spend some time praying as a family. And then we're going to end with some worship. So let's bow our heads in this place. God, this is a time that we may not be used to, God. This is something that we've kind of driven out of the religious routine. But Jesus, you said that your house shall be known as a house of prayer. So God, today we're attempting to get back to first purpose, that your will would be done in this place. God, let faith and hope rise in this place. God, I pray that freedom would come to those who are in bondage, that freedom would come to those struggling. God, that Faith would come to those who are doubting. God, I pray that healing would come to those who are sick. God, I just pray in the name of Jesus that your spirit is unleashed now in Jesus' name. And I just thank you for what you're about to do in this place. If you'd like to come forward and pray with me or one of the other leaders, I'll be down here for just a minute. But for the next few moments, just grab a couple people next to you. Again, if you want to stay in your seat, that's totally fine. But let's just spend for the next few moments praying together and watch God begin to do an incredible work in this place. Music will play and you pray. And we'll gather together in a few moments.